Philippians 13, we will be, by God's grace, finishing this marvelous book today. So many amazing things we've seen uh, through not just 2 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians. We started in 1 Corinthians, uh, summer of 2020, and um, there's been some other stuff thrown in, but here we are at the end of 2 Corinthians. I think we did 72 or so sermons in 1 Corinthians and write about 50 in 2 Corinthians. So if there's ever a question of what's going on in a verse in 1 or 2 Corinthians, we've preached on it. So you can go online and see where those sermons are and you can listen to what we have to say about that. Um, I have really enjoyed this and um, a little bit sad it's coming to an end, but uh, one, one of our poets has even said, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. And so here we are. <clears throat> well, how about I pray, and then we'll uh, get into our text today. Father, we thank You so much for all the ways that You've cared for us and provided for us. I thank You that we have so many reasons to be thankful. Lord, You've provided and protected in ways that we don't even recognize. And uh, I thank You so much of all the things You've done in our hearts, hearing so many Testimonies here this morning of what you've been doing uh, is just, it's, it makes us so gratified. We are so thankful because every good and perfect gift has come from you. You are the one who has uh, given us what we have, and God, help us to be thankful every day of the year, not just once a year, but every day. And Lord, we ask today as we look into the end of this amazing letter, that you would help us to see what it is that you have to say, that we would recognize and understand your word and by your Spirit's power make application uh, in our lives, that you would be honored by the time that we spend here together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start in verse 5. I I covered verses 5 and 6 last week, but let's go ahead and look at uh, verses 5 through 10. The Apostle Paul tells this church, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test. But I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we would rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. For this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Well, as we looked at last week in verses 5 and 6, Paul had turned this church in on themselves. They were to examine themselves, they were to test themselves to see whether they were in the faith. The test was a very basic but very critical test of asking themselves the question if they have exercised authentic faith in Jesus Christ. That was the test. Is Jesus Christ in you? Paul is telling them to ask themselves. He's asking them to ask themselves if they've truly been saved. That was the test. And there were two possible outcomes we looked at last week. 
It's a pass-fail test. There's not a spectrum. You either pass the test or you fail the test. In passing the test, they could indeed thank God for their salvation. They could be grateful for their salvation. And they could, of course, embrace the Apostle Paul because it was through Paul that the gospel came to them. It was through the Apostle Paul's work that they first heard the gospel and believed, and they would now embrace him and his instruction for them in this letter. If they didn't do that, if they failed the test, there would be discipline. Paul would not spare anyone, he says at the beginning of chapter 13. But those who reject the faith, those who are false apostles, those who are causing trouble in the church would be disciplined by Paul in power. But this would not be Paul's power. Let me remind you that earlier in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, "...we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves." That was Paul's desire was not to be powerful himself in the flesh, but that the power of God would shine through him, and that would be the power that would be on display if he came to that church and had to discipline the church. God's power, of course, is the kind that is perfected in weakness. It's a kind of power that is supernatural. It's otherworldly. It's not the power of man. It's the power of God. Well, Paul tells us in this passage, starting in verse 7, that there were three ultimate desires that he and his fellow missionaries had for the Corinthians. These three desires, if accomplished, would make all things right in Corinth. All would be well in Corinth if these three things could be followed. The first found in verse 7 is that they would do no wrong. Look how Paul words this. We pray to God that you do no wrong. This revelation of the missionary team's prayer that they're praying to God for this, it's really serving as a basic call to obedience for the church. Stated negatively, it's that they do no wrong. Stated positively is that they do what is right. That's their prayer for this church, that this church would do what is right. That they would act with Christian integrity in removing evil from their midst. That starts, of course, in their own hearts with personal repentance, going to the Lord and asking for forgiveness for those ways in which they had sinned. But it also extends to church discipline and removing the evil from their midst, as Paul encouraged them to do in his first letter to them. In 1 Corinthians 5, he told them the evil was to be removed from their midst. And Paul says that this is their prayer. Look at verse 7 again, the second half of verse 7. This is their prayer that they would do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. Even though we may appear unapproved. So even if the missionary team still was regarded with a very low view by some people in Corinth, even if Paul was looked down upon, his desire was that they would do what is right, that they would do no wrong. That was more important than his own reputation. Robert Gramacki in his commentary states it this way, Paul was not selfish. He would rather see them do the right thing than see himself exalted. That's the heart of a loving leader, is to see God's people do what is right, regardless of your own reputation. Restoration, of course, was the goal. Paul wanted to be restored to this church. He wanted them to be one big happy family again. But God comes first, and their restoration with God was paramount. And in verse 8, Paul adds this. He says about them, even though they may appear unapproved, he says, 
We can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. Doing right was a priority for this team, and they needed to understand that. They were men of integrity whose ministry was never underhanded. They were never sinfully crafty or anything like that. They were men of integrity, and they were calling the Corinthians to join them in having integrity for the sake of the truth. You know, if you do no wrong or if you do what is right, that means you are for the truth. That's what that means. And Paul is saying, that's what we do. We prioritize the truth. And he wanted them to join them in that effort. And their commitment to that would be revealed in willingness to repudiate sinful behavior or otherwise discipline sinful behavior in the church. So his first desire was that they would do what is right. The second one is found in verse 9, that they would be strengthened. He says, For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. He desired that they would be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. What, what, does, that, what does that mean? It doesn't mean going to the gym, though that's helpful and good. It doesn't mean, you know, physical exercise. What it means is that you have truth and love working together at a pretty high clip in your life, or in this case, in the church. To have a strong church, for a church to be strengthened, means you've got a lot of truth and a lot of love working together. Consider how Paul worded it elsewhere. This is in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Paul commissions this church saying, We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by, by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. How do we all work together? How does each joint supply what is needed? How is there cooperation and strength demonstrated in the body of Christ? Speaking the truth in love. That's it. You can't have a strong church. You can't have personally a strong spiritual life if there's no truth being spoken in love. If you're low on truth, you're low on love, there's no strength. There's weakness. And again, Paul says that this is his desire for them, even if he and his team would appear weak, if the false teachers still considered them to be weak, even if there were some left in Corinth who thought of them as weak, his desire was for them to be strong. That was what was ultimately important. It would be cause for rejoicing no matter what, as long as the Corinthian church was strengthened in the truth and in love. And it says at the end of verse 9 that they also prayed for them to be made complete. This single Greek word means to be restored or to be mended, to be reconciled. He desired for that church to have a unified strength, to have relationships in the church and relationships with believers outside of the church that were marked by truth and love. That's how they would be strengthened. That's how they would be made complete. And the third ultimate desire that Paul had for this church is found in verse 10, that they would be built up. He says, for this reason, I am writing these things while absent, so that when present, I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not 
for tearing down. So it wasn't just that they would be built up. We just saw in that Ephesians passage that the church is able to build itself up. It's not just that, but he's wanting his authority, his involvement in the church to be used for building up. That was an ultimate desire of Paul, that he would be used by God for construction and not for destruction, for construction only. He did not want to employ severity. You see that word in verse 10? He doesn't want to have to use severity with them. Even though he had the right to exercise it, it wasn't his desire. His desire was to build them up. Look back with me just a page or two back to chapter 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and look at Paul say something similar here, starting in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 7, Paul tells this church, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem to, as if I would terrify you by my letters. He did not want to use severity. He did not want to terrify them. He recognized he had this authority from God for the purpose of building them up. But sometimes good leaders, even though they desire to build, even though they desire to construct, even though they desire to build people up in love, good leaders recognize that there are times when you have to tear down. And we know this as a basic principle of conservation, don't we? To conserve things in the world, you got to prune, you got to take things away. Sometimes you have to get really destructive. You have to burn things. Things have to, have to be burned, and those ashes then fertilize the next round of growth. You think of that ancient slash-and-burn technique of farming, and that's just a reality. Things have to be destroyed so that things can get better. Well, good leaders recognize when they have to do that. They don't want to do that, but they have to do that. Now, there are some leaders out there who make destroying like the main mark of their ministry. It's like what they do is they just go around destroying people all the time. That's bad. That's very bad. That's someone who's not a good leader does that constantly, but good leaders do it when they have to. Paul is saying here, how about you repent before I get there? So there's no slashing and burning in Corinth. <laughs> how, about, how about you turn back to the Lord, turn back to truth, turn back to love before I arrive so that we can just enjoy one another. He wanted his authority to be used for building, not for destroying. But truly, the choice was theirs. Paul would just respond accordingly. So his ultimate desires for them were to do what is right, to be strengthened, and to be built up. And the good news is that it seems like it all worked out. We don't have a ton of evidence for this. We don't have a lot of strong evidence for this, but there's some evidence of this. I mentioned, I think last week, how Paul wrote the book of Romans from Corinth. He was there with the Corinthians when he wrote that book, and he mentions them and doesn't say anything negative. He talks about wanting to continue to go on to Spain. It would be very unlikely he would still be able to do that if there were these outstanding issues in that church. So it seems as though things worked out, that they were doing at least some of what was right, that they were being strengthened, that they were being built up enough to cooperate with Paul and support him in his missionary endeavors. So that's good. Isn't that good? Now, I don't know if that church 
still exists in any shape, way, shape, or form. I really doubt that there's the original Corinthian church back in Corinth. That's just the nature of local churches. They are planted, they grow, they bear fruit, and over time they die. But again, God's work is to take what has died and use it as the seeds for the next round of growth. And so the Corinthian church, at least for that time, seemed to be back on track. And so Paul finishes the letter here with some commands that are relevant for every church in every age. In verses 11 through 14, very, very practical for us. Let me read those as a whole here. Starting in verse 11, Paul says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Well, here are just some basic rules for fellowship, a basic commission for the local church as the local church serves one another, as those of us who make up the local church live in and around with one another, that we would follow these orders adding to our great commission, which is to reach the world for Jesus, we reach one another with truth and love and we're built up so that we can continue to reach the world for Him. Very, very important commands are found here. Notice in verse 11 that Paul approaches them with this term, brethren. Yours might say brothers, but it's not insignificant that Paul calls them that. You would think with all their problems and all the ways they've mistreated him, he would have used a word like rascals or stubborn, bullheaded, annoying people or something like that. But he doesn't. He calls them brothers. Very, very significant. Because don't we know that that's a term that we use as brothers and sisters in the faith, the family of God. We look at each other as siblings because we've been adopted by God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul here is affirming their faith in the Lord Jesus. Very significant. And he gives them five sweet commands. First, he says, rejoice. Now, yours potentially could say farewell here because it's a word that's also used as a greeting or rather as a salutation to greet someone by saying, joy to you. It could be translated farewell. But here it's a command. It means to rejoice. It's a command that Paul has used in other places. I think of Philippians chapter 4 when he tells that church, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We have to be commanded to rejoice. Isn't that interesting? We have all the reason in the world to rejoice as believers, but we still need to be commanded to rejoice. Particularly, I think some of our personalities need to be reminded to rejoice when we're maybe more attracted to looking at the dark side of life, being more negative, looking at the gloomy things. How else can I say this? I don't know. But just being like Jerry. Uh, (laughs) Those of us who are more prone to being melancholy need to be reminded, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command for Christians. It's a posture of our heart that we would rejoice. Secondly, he says, be made complete. And this is very similar. That's the same root word as found back in verse 9 when he says, we pray that you be made complete. He now commands them based on his own prayer, be made complete. 
Same idea that they would mend what is broken, that they would restore, that they would fix what has been broken, both their relationship with God and the truth and their relationships with one another, that there would be restoration. Thirdly, he says, be comforted. And actually, a better translation of this may be, be encouraged, because the word also means to be admonished, to be instructed, to be corrected in the Lord, to have your way of thinking changed by the content of this very letter. The theme of encouragement is very big in this letter. Paul starts off his letter by talking about comfort. We comfort one another with the comfort we have from God and the comfort with which we are comforted. We comfort one another. That famous passage that mentions the word comfort over and over again. It's the same word here, that we would be instructed, encouraged, admonished, comforted in the truth. He calls them to be instructed in Christian encouragement. Fourthly, he says, to be like-minded. This means to think the same thing. He tells this group of Christians that's gathered together, think about life in the same way. Think the same things together. Be guided by truth together. The way I like to picture this is like the uh, amazing interstate system that we have here in America, and you've got all these ways to merge on and to merge off. Well, we all come from different backgrounds, different walks of life. We all have different experiences. We're all very, very different. And yet, we can be like-minded when we merge together. And that's, of course, rooted in looking at God's Word together, being guided by God together in the truth. What's our, what's our common highway for life? It's Scripture, isn't it? It's the Word of God. And so no matter what background you came from, whether you got on the road a long time ago or you just got on recently, we're all on the same path together. We're all journeying in this life together, like-minded, being found, studying the Word of God together and seeking to make decisions based on Scripture together. That's what we're all about here as a church. And not only a church, but we're a Bible church, aren't we? We come together to look at the Word of God that we would be like-minded. And then... The result of this, number five, is living in peace with one another. The fifth instruction in this group, be like-minded, live in peace. That peace is a result of being like-minded, isn't it? It's a result of the merge. There's unity and there's forbearance that we have with one another because of our like-mindedness in the Word of God. Even though we have so many differences, our personalities are so different, our convictions are so different, our futures are different, we can still live at peace with one another because we're like-minded based on the Word of God. A direct result. More results of this are seen in verses 12 and 13. Living in peace results in greeting one another. Verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. Verse 13, all the saints greet you. Greeting one another was particularly in reference of men to men and women to women. You didn't have men rushing up to women to give them a holy kiss or vice versa. This was something that each gender did among themselves, a welcoming touch that believers gave one another, signifying we're in the family together. I greet you. I welcome you. You are welcome here. But it's not only physically greeting people locally, it's also greeting that's extended to believers far away. Because even though You've never met them, even though you will never meet them. 
There are other Christians in many places around the world with whom you are like-minded, and you can still greet in the Lord. Isn't that an amazing thing? It's just one of my favorite things. When we're on vacation or something, I love visiting other churches. I uh, like to do research for people who want to visit churches when they're on vacation to give recommendations. And you go and you join these people, you're seeing them for the only time you're ever going to see them in your life, in many cases. But you can be like-minded with them. You can greet them. You can have an amazing fellowship with them. You can worship together with them because we are in the truth together. We're in the Word of God together, and we have peace. So amazing. Well, the result of having these things going on, rejoicing, being made complete, being comforted, being like-minded, living in peace, is found there at the end of verse 11. The God of love and peace will be with you. If a church has these things going on, they get this special blessing of God experiencing His love and His peace, experiencing a particular nearness of His comfort. Now, it's true that as Christians, God is always with us. It's true as true churches that are gospel-believing churches always have God with them. We are temples of God individually and as a church. However, There are times when true believers lose their way and, as a result, don't experience very much of the nearness of the comfort of God, don't experience the profound encouragement that we have in God. It affects our relationship with God when we stray from that which we're called to do. But if we are on the right track seeking to imitate our Lord in the way that we live, we have this promise that the God of love and peace will be with us, will be blessing us with His love. And he closes the letter with this amazing verse, verse 14, a beautiful Trinitarian benediction, Father, Son, and Spirit are all seen in this verse, attributes and actions of each of the persons, an amazing, amazing verse that you would do well to memorize. MacArthur says of this verse in his commentary, that there is no New Testament benediction as theologically rich and profound as this one. What a statement. It is the only one that mentions all three persons of the Trinity. Each of the attributes and actions that we see of the Lord Jesus, of God the Father, of the Holy Spirit, they all apply to our initial faith in the Lord, and they also all apply to our continuing on of living this life for the Lord, which we'll look at here momentarily. It It explains in just one verse how the triune God works in our lives, how Father, Son, and Spirit cooperate perfectly together to draw you nearer and nearer to truth and love. And you'll notice that what's listed first here is grace, particularly the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so often when we talk about the Trinity, we say Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, some people will say the first person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity. And you can do that. That's fine. Uh, that's, scripture, that's not from Scripture. Okay, I just want to say that. It's not that it's sin, but it's just not from Scripture. We don't ever read in Scripture. The first person of the Trinity is the Father. The second person of the Trinity is the Son. We just don't have that. And what could perhaps surprise some people who are really committed to such a formula is that Paul's formula lists Jesus first, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. And this isn't because the Son ranks higher than the Father, 
And the whole first, second, third person of the Trinity thing isn't meant to denote that one ranks higher than the other. That's not what a true believer's intention is there. But what we see in both of those models is that the persons are equal. There is equality among the persons. You could say the Spirit, the Son, and the Father if you wanted, and it wouldn't be sinful. Because the Spirit is God, the Son is God, and the Father is God. And here, the Son is listed first. His grace is listed first. This is the grace that Jesus gives us as our good Lord. There are some people who will say the phrase good Lord is like a bad thing. What's up with that? I don't know why they do that. I don't know why they, why they say that. It's like, hey, that's my master you're talking about. You know, you should not do that. When we say good Lord, we mean our Lord Jesus, He is good, isn't He? And He has grace. He gives us His grace. This, of course, is seen in our salvation. As Christ is our only hope of redemption, His grace is our only hope of redemption. I want to read to you a whole lot of verses uh, about these things. Um, all New Testament verses. I, I don't have them in your notes. Usually I put the little references in your notes, but this would be like two pages of just references. And so you can just jot down whatever jumps out at you and study it more later, okay? But think of how the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is revealed in our salvation. Titus 2.11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. We know, of course, that the salvation that has come to us is in Jesus. The salvation that we have is in Jesus' death and resurrection. But Paul, writing to Titus, he says, this is the grace of God. Jesus' death and resurrection, the salvation that has come to all men, it's the appearance of the grace of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 15, contrasting Adam with Jesus, Paul writes, the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God, and here it is, the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So not only is our salvation, the grace of God appearing in a general way, it's a gift by the grace of Jesus Christ. Your salvation, this offer of forgiveness of sins, this eternal life that you have is a gift of Jesus' grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, earlier in this very letter, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. What's your only way of flipping your spiritual bank account? Spiritual bank, bank account that's infinitely negative. What's your only hope? That Jesus, because of His grace, became poor for your sake so that you could become rich, that you could have eternal life, that you could have salvation imparted to your soul forever and ever, that the righteousness of God would be credited to you. It's His grace. It's Jesus' grace. But it's not just in our salvation. We don't just experience the grace of Jesus when we first believe. Don't you know that Paul talks a lot about the grace of Jesus as a continuing reality for the Christian? In our sanctification, in our growth in holiness, we are totally dependent on the grace of Jesus Christ to persevere in this life. You don't have the grace of Jesus going on continually day by day, Christian. You're not going to persevere. You're not going to grow. 
You're not going to be set apart for God in a twisted, wicked, perverse generation. Consider how Paul has ended so many of his letters in the New Testament. Romans 16, verse 20, Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Love that. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The grace of Jesus be with you. 1 Corinthians 16, 23, the end of that letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Galatians 6, 18, the end of that letter. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Philippians 4, 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 2 Thessalonians 3.18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Over and over again, he's ending his letters by commissioning them to embrace and enjoy and live in the grace of Jesus Christ. And the grace of Jesus as Christians is our strength. His grace is our strength. Writing to the young pastor Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.1, Paul says, you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. You can have the strength of God, the power of God. You can live in God's strength for you by leaning into the grace that is in Jesus Christ. Well, next in his Trinitarian benediction, Paul says, the love of God, not only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being with them, but the love of God being with them. This is not our love for God. This is God's love for us. This isn't about our love toward Him in this instance, but about God's love toward us, which is a love unlike any other. It's a love unlike anything that you'll find in this fallen world. It's a love unlike any love that's been given to you by a fellow human being. Some people have a really difficult time embracing God as Father, as He's revealed Himself as the Father because we've had human fathers who have failed us so miserably. But God is a perfect Father. His love is perfect. His love was was without any mistake, without any blemish. The love of God is absolutely pure and holy and perfect and eternal, and we should embrace the love of God, not just in our salvation, but as we live day by day. First, we have to see that the love of God is the basis of our salvation. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, one of the verses we have out in the lobby, says, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the demonstration of the love of God, Jesus' death in our place for our sins. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, when the kindness of God our Savior, and here it is, His love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. Back-to-back chapters in Titus, one says salvation was grace appearing, and another verse says salvation is love appearing. Isn't that wonderful? 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, by this The love of God was manifested in us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. The love of God has been manifested. It's been revealed. It's been uncovered by Jesus dying in our place for our sins. And a verse that Steve quoted earlier, 
1 John 4.19, simple memory verse. We love because He first loved us. Our salvation is utterly dependent on the love of God, isn't it? Without the love of God, you have no salvation. Without His freely given love, you've got no hope. You have no peace. But He does love you. And He has demonstrated that love by giving His only begotten Son in your place for your sins. And this love abides with us as Christians. This love is in us. This love is over us. And we are called to press into the love of God day by day through this life. We don't experience it once. We don't say, whoa, Jesus died for us because God loves us. That's cool. And then we go back to just like life without the love of God. That's not how that works. But instead, the love of God abides with us. It remains with us. God Himself imparts His love to us over and over again. In Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, we're told that we cannot be separated from this love. Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very, very good news, Christian. Nothing is ever going to pry apart the love of God that has been stuck to your soul, the love of God that's been poured out into your spirit. No created thing can ever come in between you and the love of God. Amazing, amazing. But consider how else the love of God is talked about in our sanctification as Christians. 2 Thessalonians verse 5 of chapter 3, it says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. Since we have the love of God in our hearts permanently, what this means is, may God continue direct to direct you in the application of His love. As His love has been poured out in your heart, may He continually instruct you in the way that you are to live on the basis of the love of God. Same kind of idea is found in Jude, verses 20 and 21. This apostle writes, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, here's our instruction, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. What an amazing verse. We, even though we permanently have the love of God, no one can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can, can come in between us and the love of God. We are to keep ourselves in the love of God meaning we are to continually practice, continually apply the love of God to our lives. 1 John chapter 2, verse 5 tells us, Whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected. Whoever keeps the word of God, in that person the love of God has truly been perfected. Amazing. Well, finally, Paul commissions them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit as well. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The fellowship that the Spirit Himself imparts. The fellowship that He continues to give us as we grow in our faith. We grow closer to God and grow closer to one another. This initially happened at our salvation. When you were born again to a living hope, that event that happened in a moment in time in history when God called you to Himself, you were brought into fellowship with God and you were brought into fellowship with the church of God. 
Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 3, it says, We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So you see again the theme of the love of God and the way that the love of God came to our hearts was through the Holy Spirit who brings us into fellowship with God, the God who loves us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, it says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. The Spirit of God has come into our lives and He has placed us in the body of Christ. If you're a Christian today, you're a member of the big church that God's building in the world, the capital C Church. You are a member of the body of Christ because of the Holy Spirit bringing you into fellowship with God and into fellowship with other Christians. But not only that, in this life that we live as saved individuals, as Christians, the Holy Spirit continues to lead us in this fellowship. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 14, I got three more passages for you. Romans 8, 14 to 17, it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be glorified with Him. The Spirit of God testifies with your spirit that you are a child of God, not just initially at salvation, but over and over again through this Christian life as you struggle, as you have doubts, as you just live in a very difficult place, let's face it, a fallen world. The Holy Spirit guides and directs you through the Word of God, through the people of God, into more and more fellowship with God and His people and encouragement that you are truly a child of God. 1 John chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, it says, This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Isn't this a sweet fellowship? A sweet fellowship of the Spirit? That we know that He abides in us because He's given us His Spirit. And finally, same book, 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And what's our testimony now that we have the Spirit of God? We have the fellowship of the Spirit. Here's our testimony, verse 14. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Amen? What an amazing statement. So Paul says to end this marvelous letter, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
And don't we need the grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit? What gifts God has given His people. So heed His word, embrace Him, and these are yours in Christ. Grace, love, fellowship. Let's pray. God, again, we thank You so much for what You have done. You are worthy of all honor and glory forever and ever. We will worship You forever. We will live with You forever. We will explore with You forever. What an amazing and beautiful creation that You've set in place. And what an amazing salvation that we have that all things can be restored in this fallen world in Jesus. God, help us to live for You not only today, but tomorrow when reality smacks us in the face. Help us to keep ourselves in Your love that we would focus on the grace of Jesus, that we would listen to your Spirit's call as he guides us into more and more fellowship with you and with each other. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. That little wire hangs off a little far if you don't tuck it in right, so... Can't wait till the day I accidentally pull the, one of these things off me. There we go. All right, we're cooking now. All right, please turn in your hymnal to number 476. Hymn number 476. We'll sing together, I Surrender All. And stand, please. 